0: So long Daylight Savings to those of us living in countries that do that thing. And welcome to episode 21 of the Game Developers Podcast, Out of Play Area, where we take developers out of their comfortable play spaces to share their knowledge. And today we sit down with Angelica Vaca, a QA veteran who's made the jump over into user experience over at Intercept Games. We go through her journey discovering games working up through customer support at Big Fish Games and breaking into QA for companies like Glue, Bungie, PopCap, Microsoft and King, working also at the local favorite Card Kingdom and embracing and following on her curiosities to find her current love in game development user experience. Coming to us from the Emerald City we affectionately love, known as Seattle, please welcome New Mexico native, Gel. Vaca! Let's start the show.
1: Bienvenido. bienvenue, Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer John Diaz. I just accepted an offer to uh, take up a contract role with WB uh, over there in Kirkland. I'm going to be helping him out as a user research assistant, which is something I've been wanting to get into for like the last couple of years. So I'm really excited to be able to start that up soon.
0: That's such awesome news. I love hearing when people find something new that they're excited about and looking forward to and that you're in that transition phase. Who's your contact over there? I, I know a few people over there on the UX side of things and the, the BI side. But curious, who's your contact?
1: I talked to him about a year ago, asking about one of the roles over there. His name is Phil. He's the manager for the user research department over there. And it started off as a conversation. Turns out he had a role that was opening up. We talked about it, did some interviews. He saw the potential in some of the things that I did before and some of the things I'm interested in. Didn't quite make it just because there was another person who had a lot of experience in that area. And so they said, well, we're going to go with her this time, but you know, definitely keep us in mind for next time. We'll keep you in mind as well. We had another chat this year and they had an opening that said, we would love to have you on board and, you know, kind of show you the ropes and help get you further in what you want to do.
0: Was that the result of you continuing to follow up and apply or did they reach out to you once they had an open role? How did that materialize?
1: It actually was me reaching out after our last conversation last year, I was in a position where I was looking around again, doing some learning on my own. And I kind of just reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, I'm looking around again. I uh, don't know if you guys have anything opening up, but if you do, just let me know. I'd love to talk to you about whatever and, you know, get some more learning in. And he said, we actually do have something coming up. And uh, I kind of skipped some of the areas that we would have done before because we've already had the conversation.
0: Was it a formal interview at all? Did you have to meet the team and, and go through that? or?
1: Yeah, and a lot of them were the same ones that I talked to last time, too. So it was very easy to <laughs> just get into a conversation with them.
0: That's so cool. And you probably had a bunch of little news stories that happened in the past year.
1: Yeah, they, they didn't know anything about uh, some of the stuff that I'd done with uh, the last role at Card Kingdom. And so it was a little bit of chatting of what I've been doing in the meantime, plus some of the actual learning I've been doing.
0: This is for UX. Is it user analytics or user research? What exactly does it entail?
1: Yeah, this particular one says user research assistant. I think other departments will call it yeah, UX research or user research or something along the lines. For this particular role, it's going to be helping out with the lab work. So I don't know if you've ever gone into one of those sessions where people want to do play tests. Uh, usability, get some feedback on stuff. So I'll be helping them out with that stuff, uh, making sure that I can manage the people that are coming in, set that stuff up for them, help them collect results, which we can take back to uh, the designers, people on the team, and make the features better for the game.
0: I love playtests. Playtests are so vital to what we do, making any game, and especially getting feedback when something is ready, right? When something is decent enough to be controlled and, and have a player experience it. I love being behind the glass, right? And what I mean by that is usually it's like those two-way mirrors, right? Where you can see (laughs) them, but they can't see you. You know, you get to see people that are not familiar with your content, that don't work with you, experience your game. And more often than not, it's usually heart-wrenching, right? Where you just like wish you can steer them to tell them, Hey, press this button here. Or how did you miss this obvious glaring sign that I spent so much time developing and designing for the player not to get lost here. Yeah. Plays as are vital. And so, but you guys call them a lab. And I wonder what your experiences with coordinating those, conducting them. What are your go-to tools when you're setting that up?
1: Yeah, so actually I got into this stuff as a QA person with uh, one of the teams I was working with at King. We did a lot of internal play tests. We didn't have the stuff that was going out to the users or anything. Just because it was, we didn't have anything like that. We didn't have people that did this type of thing. Keyway ended up being the people that would kind of help out with some of that stuff. And so it's a lot of making sure the build is ready for people that are going to be playing it, setting an environment up for that, setting those certain situations up that you want to get tested, maybe giving a forward to people ahead of time and just saying in in the email, just say, this is what we're doing. Here are the things you're going to focus on. Don't worry about this stuff. We need help uh, getting set up. Talk to these guys. And then afterward, you know, as you're going through the actual play of the game, Getting that feedback from people, and in those cases, it was a lot of like, just shout it out, we're going to put it on a board, we're going to talk about it later. In more lab formal setting, it's something I haven't done before, like I said, because we just never had that. But it's somewhat similar, I'm sure. The people that, if anyone's listening to this actually I use a research right now, they're going to be like, no, it's not.
0: <laughs> uh, like
1: it's, it's more thought out and all that stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. the results of all of it and the feedback that we get away from it is still stuff that, you know, will help out in whatever way that we can. The user researchers present in a way that is not meant to lead to uh, certain changes, but is meant to present things as they are so that people can make the decisions on what would be uh, a good thing to do about certain things that came up.
0: You have a pretty broad background. You're currently in, in uh, user research. And you have a lot of experience in quality assurance. And as I understand it, you got into games kind of by accident. Like it wasn't part of your original plan, as I understand it, when you were in college.
1: Yeah, it was entirely by accident. My college was me going to school, coming out of high school with a plan of going to be an art conservator, went directly into art history learning here in Tacoma, Washington, did all that stuff, did a lot of studio arts, sciences did a minor in religion, no ideas of anything about the game industry and all that stuff. That happened uh, a few years afterward, after I got out of college. I was hopping around different industries, trying to figure out what to do because the recession was around. And so I I couldn't find the work that I wanted to do. So I went from art museum work to health industry to doing a little bit of customer service for Big Fish Games, although it wasn't exactly interacting with the devs.
0: What was that role at Big Fish Games?
1: Customer service, so that was us pretty much being in the basement of the building. I think it was a three-story building, Mm -hmm. devs on each of the other levels above us. We were either communicating with the users or the customers through phones or emails or those quick chats that you do whenever you got to ask for support. we were the people that were helping them with the billing or getting through certain situations or the bugs have come up. So it was not my favorite job of all of them.
0: I could see how that would prepare you for more thorough bug reproduction and documentation and things like this. Do you recall any particular conversations you had as you were a customer support?
1: You know, actually, the ones that really stick out are the good stories. Like there were a lot of people that, you know, had an issue about something and for that group, an older audience. And so you have to walk them through kind of step by step how to get to certain things. But they sometimes become regular contacts. And so they will request you to come back and chat with them. And you get a lot of stories of like, oh, you've been such a big help to me. I want you to know how much this means to me. These games have helped me through some really difficult times. And that's kind of the thing that I really enjoyed about getting into the game industry was that for me, in my own story too, is that games do mean a lot to a lot of people in different ways. And uh, especially in those ones that are going through really difficult times, like it's nice to be able to say, you know, I helped them through in this different way.
0: The thing that I admire about a lot of the people that I work with are the empathetic muscles that they tend to have for the player. And for other developers, it's funny, as you mentioned that, I remember when I was on the NES days and you turn over the cartridge at the back of the box and you could see the Nintendo hotline and you can call the Nintendo hotline and you're put in touch with the game pros, essentially, that they know these games inside and out. And you could be like, yo, I'm stuck in Zelda. I don't know how to get past this dungeon. Walk me through. And so I'm curious on your side of things. Do you have like a wiki with all the answers or do you have to kind of go off your experience to progress through an issue? How were you set up for the support?
1: That's actually hard to answer because they had different people to answer questions like that. So they had us on billing, they had other people to help overall on the phones, and they actually had different people that were helping out with those more game related questions other than the billing.
0: Oh, so you, you were on the billing side. I
1: was on the billing side.
0: Okay. Those are kind of straightforward issues, I, I would imagine.
1: Yeah. Uh, they were mostly trying to ask, like, why am I on this membership? I don't remember signing up for that. <laughs> 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 uh, but I, I do, I think I remember hitting one or two of those ones in my time. And they, were, they offer a lot of games over there for that company. And so they yeah, I don't believe fish. they had a wiki for them. So it was a little bit of either one, relying on those people that were already there who had the knowledge of the game or to just to go through a little bit yourself, a walkthrough along with them. Because one of the types of games it did was the search games. Like you have to go and find an item on the screen. And so it's a little hard to describe it sometimes. You're like, oh, you got to go and look for this item over here and just look really closely. It's dark.
0: My only comparison is, is more tactile, whereas Waldo style, mm-hmm. and and that is at least a 2D drawing image. But I imagine the way that these search games are built digitally is you can just kind of layer on items and items and items to make people kind of dig through.
1: I think it depends on the game, but even some of those, it like, can get difficult. They let us have access to some of those games, and so I play a lot of those type of games just to pass the time. Uh, I learned some of it just in case, but yeah, they get hard. (laughs) Uh, Were
0: there any perks of being part of Big Fish for access to their games or things like this?
1: I did share a couple of games with some of my family. They were a big fan of Fairway Solitaire, which is one of their big ones. And one of the things about Big Fish to know, and I think they still do this, Every month to celebrate the birthdays of all the people in the company, they have a cake day. And so they put two different cakes on each of the floors of the building. And so they put it in an email and they say, all right, cakes out, go get your cake. Happy birthday. And people go running across the building, across all the different floors to figure out which one had their favorite cake flavor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a mad dash. I know you got to get there first for sure. So this dynamic was interesting because I always picture myself from the dev floor development side, you know, the dynamics of an office being what they are, people on different floors and different offices, but generally, yeah, going out of my way to connect with each and every person that worked in the same building. And what you're saying is that you guys were pretty much cut off from the dev floor.
1: In that particular instance, we were, I don't know if it's still that way now, because I know Mm. they've moved buildings for one, and I'm sure the company has changed a bit since I've been there. Usually contractors, I think, is how we did it in the CS department. And so we only had access to that first floor and maybe the one after that to get to the reception area. So we really didn't have a lot of access to see what the teams were doing or talk to even the producers or QA or designers or any of that. So... I I didn't get an introduction to games that way, but I did help people with their games in a way.
0: (laughs) Going from Big Fish, this is where you stumbled into your first QA contract with Goo.
1: Yeah, I'd reached the end of my contract with Big Fish Games to do a surgery. And this was something I knew was going to come up for me for a while, but it was finally the time to do it. I broke my jaw on purpose. It was both the upper and lower part of my jaw. And they also went in and did a little bit of trying to correct a deviated septum in my nose. Mm -hmm. So I went into that surgery and it was uh, a little more complicated than they had originally planned for it to be. So I ended up staying in the hospital for a few more days. It was kind of uh, touchy is what they told me. They were a little scared for me while I was in that. And I do remember actually waking up during that time and my face was swollen up. It looked like I was in a fight with Rocky and just kind of lost real badly, you know.
0: You were facing Mr. T in Part Three or Dolph Lundgren in Part Four.
1: Yeah, no, it's such a good movie, but yeah, I was on the I was on the bad side of that. <laughs> <laughs> my mom actually was sitting there next to me with an iPad, like just or it was a Kindle actually. She had a Kindle with her. I had this little dinky zombie shooter game, and I can't remember what the game was, but you know, I was pretty pretty rough where I was. I had my mouth wired shut. My face is just swollen, you know, and playing this little game, and it's it was. so, such a good release from the pain that I was in and just like all the trauma that I kind of felt like I'd gone through during the whole process. I was so thankful to have that as a distraction and you know that kind of stuck with me and so While I was recovering at home, I was applying for jobs because I had nothing better to do other than survive. I happened to see on Craigslist, there was an ad for uh, being a QA tester with no experience necessary. And I said, that sounds sketchy.
0: What year was this for people that are looking at it and be like, what Craigslist? I can get work on Craigslist.
1: (laughs) That was 2012. Uh, It's a little while ago. And I said, you know, no experience, sure, I'll put in an application for that. I think it'd be funny. Like I grew up playing games, like that would be really cool, but I never saw it as a job. Like I just, it never occurred to me that that was something that people could actually do.
0: What was your first love as a video game?
1: I grew up in a family that had a lot of uncles. Uh, one of my uncles, the youngest one, had an NES. And so that was my first introduction to that stuff. I think we played a little bit computer games as well. but The one I remember for that one was uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. I think it was on,
0: on the NES.
1: Yeah. If you go out and look at the videos, I'm sure it's really terrible, <laughs> but I remember it being the coolest thing. Cause you start off, I think it's Luke on the Tauntaun and you're like going through all these like oh, platform levels and I'm just, you know, it's Star Wars. It's really cool.
0: Okay. It's like a 2d side scroller yeah. platformer action. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They got some sweet things going on here with like a compass and a mini map and kind of depth to it as well. We're like kind of multiple roles where you can be at the foreground and the mid-ground yeah, yeah you, gotta,
1: you gotta watch the video for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Hey, I'm going to link this in the show notes. So NES, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back looks ahead of its time, looking back on it.
1: We should have more of those now. <laughs> but yeah, I graduated to the Genesis after that, and that was my first console. And so, uh, you know, we ended up playing a lot of Mortal Kombat games. Uh, i uh, glad that, you know, the movie just came out. I saw all that. I'm a big fan.
0: What a great first game to go back to. Mortal Kombat was big for sure in the 90s. I remember Mortal Monday, those commercials were insane. Of course, all the salacious news and blood codes and all this. But truth be told, it was just an awesome video game in terms of feedback and action and iconic characters and really cool mechanics with all the moves and the finishers and things like this. So if Mortal Kombat was one of your first early ones, then...
1: Legit, right? no I was uh, just thinking the other day too I was like you know I'd love to be able to find a designer for that old game because I want to understand you know how did they come up with some of the moves that they did like you know Luke King is there doing all these regular things and he's all of a sudden a fireball and the bicycle kid comes out of nowhere like what was the, the decision on some of that stuff
0: for sure I want to talk to the combat designers on yeah. the match <laughs> I have definitely a, a list of people I want to speak to right like Ed Boo and John Tobias those guys maybe I might get lucky one day and everybody on definitely want to pick their brains of the beginnings of mortal Kombat. to where it is today right i think we're what number 11 yeah yeah i'm pretty sure
1: that is and you know yeah. that's kind of the ironic thing is now i'm going to be working with wb that's kind of full circle for me
0: because they own nether realms yep. yes and you'll probably be testing potentially you might be testing some of their fighters right so that'll be awesome
1: could happen. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure yet, but you know, opportunity is there.
0: I love it. I love how things come and go in this industry for yeah. sure. <laughs> so you were recuperating in the hospital, connecting on tablet. You see this job role on Craigslist and you apply for it with just kind of like, oh, what the heck? Why not?
1: That happens. I didn't expect to hear back from them. Eventually I did. I got an email back and I said, hey, you know, we'd love to have you in the office and chat with you about this role. Where is the best place to send this information? Is it this email address? And they gave me an email address and I said, no, that's not the one. I tried this one here. It was a little bit weirded out by like, I wonder whose email address that was, but oh, well. So I got the information from them to uh, the location in Kirkland. This was for Blue Mobile, which is actually just in the news recently. They are now acquired by EA. I think that's what it was.
0: Welcome to the mothership. <laughs> they are at EA. Our mobile team gets stronger and stronger.
1: Well, now you know they've they've been around for a while. I got the uh, email to come in. I went in that day dressed in a dress. My mouth still wired shut. I was still trying to get my strength back from recovering, working on trying to open my mouth three fingers wide. That was my goal to be able to open it that wide. Yeah, it was very hard. I could barely get one in, I think, at the time. And they had me in, and they sat me down in this room, and if anyone who's actually uh, listening to this from that interview could probably give me a more accurate number, but it felt like there were like eight to twelve people in that room. Jeez. I was in the center of them, like in a circle, and they said, you know, thanks for coming in. We're excited to hear about you. And I said, yeah, my mouth is so wide shut, but let me know if I can repeat anything or if it gets too bad. I'll write things down for you guys just to help out. And I said, no problem. We'll let you know. Let's start off with your experience at Microsoft. Can you tell us about that? And I said, I have never worked at Microsoft. And they're like, what? <laughs> and they, they looked down at their papers and they said, Cesar, you worked at Microsoft? And I said, no. And they looked again and they said, your name is Angelica, right? And I said, yeah. And they said, this is your resume, right? And I said, no, that's not me. And so all kind of had a freak out moment. They looked around at each other and they were like, uh-oh.
0: <laughs> For sure. In all my years and all the stories, I've never heard... I've always seen this thing in movies, this whole mistaken identity thing where you vet people, you have a resume, you have an email... It's very, there's all one-to-one connection, right? And it's, I've never heard of this happen before. This is actually amazing and fortuitous.
1: Yeah, I mean, the chances I have maybe met one other Angelica in person and, and in a class before, it doesn't happen that you meet that many people with that name. And so I think that's probably their confusion too, because they're like, oh, you know, that's a memorable name.
0: <laughs> it's true. No, in my family and, and friends, we we have a few Angelicas for mm-hmm. sure. You are the first Angelica I've connected with.
1: I'm from New Mexico, but up here, like I said, I just haven't seen any, but there is another one out there who was a tester. (laughs) Okay. Uh, She was my start into the role. And so, you know, when you don't actually have the matching resume that they have in front of you, they said, all right, well, how about you just talk about yourself and uh, we'll get to know you and we'll find your resume while you're talking. And I said, all right. I'll tell you about myself. And I kind of went over my background working in museums because, you know, coming out of college, I did some volunteering with the museums and that meant going into, helping with the collections department. would go down into the basements, get to see all the cool things that don't ever get to see the light of day in the museums. And it was sitting down by myself in a room and just getting a real close look at all these different pieces. And so you'd have prints that were made like in the 1800s by some French guy. And so you're looking at things that you can translate them and you're looking for mold spots for showing up on these papers rips and tears you got to measure them out be precise in their location and their numbers document all that stuff down so people know what the state of it is uh, and then decide if they want to do something about that later on or not and it it turns out that a lot of that stuff translates really well into uh, the qa environment plus my background playing with games and making a lot of friends that way it was uh, a match made in heaven 100%.
0: 100%. I could see how doing that archiving work, I don't even know what the tense of the proper way to say that is archival work. Yeah, the work. <laughs> okay, archival. Yeah. So all of that is developing a really critical eye and a real thorough attention to detail, which is extremely beneficial for someone doing any type of QA work on any product, let alone something like a video game, right, where any little thing could become mis synced or different color than what it used to be or look play a different animation or a different sound effect or something like that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's kind of the way it was in the beginning, especially as somebody who didn't know anything about the game industry or what QA actually did. the beginning, I feel like it was a lot more focused on the visual parts of things, especially with my art background, and looking for all those little imperfections or inconsistencies or just things that looked a little bit off. But, you know, as you get further into the career for a QA person, it develops a little bit more. You get to see the entire picture of, you know, what goes into making these games. The different parts that each of these disciplines add into that. And then you can also contribute as a voice to say, you know, here's my feedback. This is how it's going to affect the users. And being that vocal part to help out before it goes out to ship.
0: For sure. I always value my dev QAs that sit on the floor as key critical first voice points of feedback for any new system. I like to think that I know what I'm working on better than anybody because I've designed it. But truth be told, your QA team or person knows it 10 times better than you do. And again, are a great voice of the customer, right?
1: QA has, yeah, the unique perspective of seeing the whole picture like nobody else gets to see it.
0: Mm -hmm. So you get the role and you come aboard Glue and And yeah, what's it like? Are you giving, you know, do you have a buddy to emulate or learn from? Was there any kind of onboarding or training or any? What tools do you have at your disposal? How do you, how do you pick up this, this job?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of questioning in the beginning. And, you know, that's actually a good thing to do throughout your career in QA is to question everything, (laughs) especially in the beginning. We didn't have a formal onboarding process over there. And so I was in a room with two, maybe three other people that were in QA. They kind of grouped us together in this little tiny room, which was like a sauna. It was so hot in there, but I love the heat. So I learned by kind of observing and asking questions of the people that were around me. One of the gals that was sitting right next to me had been in it for a while. She actually knew the gal who was supposed to be in that job, and she said, I like you way better than first.
0: <laughs> Thank you for
1: taking the job. And so I, I looked at the tickets that they were writing for that stuff and kind of started mimicking some of the words that they were using, some of the formats that they were going through and using a little bit of gut feelings of, you know, you're going through the actions of something and it doesn't quite seem like it's working the way it's supposed to. Like, is it that I don't know how it's supposed to work correctly or is mm-hmm. it that it's not actually working? And so it was being able to speak up about that stuff because that does happen. Like you may not have have documentation from some of the devs or anything. You may not know exactly how it's supposed to work, but if it feels off, just bringing that to the table and talking about it will usually bring something up, whether that's maybe something's a little bit off in the design or maybe that is an actual bug or maybe we didn't think about that.
0: What does success look like at that particular role at that particular point in time? What are the expectations on you?
1: My role over there was to fill in for somebody who didn't do a good job. And so I asked some of the people over there, I said, well, what do I need to do a good job? And they said, just, just do a good job. They didn't give me (laughs) a lot to go off (laughs) of. So just
0: do better than the previous person.
1: Just do your work. And, you know, I had no idea what that meant. (laughs) Sure.
0: Yeah. What, what is your work?
1: My goal at that time, coming on as a QA contractor, was to get into full-time and then be able to explore a little bit more. I know a lot of people come into QA, and especially over there because they were so close to uh, DigiPen. They had a lot of people that were looking to start off in QA and jump into other disciplines. But for somebody who didn't know anything about that, didn't have formal training in coding, designing, arts for that type, it was just exploring to me, and so I just wanted to see if I can land a full-time role and just be able to continue to learn what is it exactly that it means to be on this team and to to do a good job. <laughs>
0: did that eventually come to fruition, or were you able to transition to full-time?
1: I did. Uh, it was a surprise to me because I was so new to it, and there were a lot of people there that had been there for longer than I had. I think they saw both my dedication to the team and to my work, as well as... I kind of have a little bit of a thoroughness that I have in uh, my work as well. And so I think they said, I think she can grow in this. I think she's going to do a good job for us. And so they hired me on as a full-time person.
0: How vital would you say writing skills are to the job?
1: You're going to be doing a lot of writing as a QA person. That's probably one of the first things that you'll go through is being introduced to the ticketing system. We use Jira a lot in many of the places I was at. Some of the people will use different things, but it's... Being able to do technical writing. And I remember when I was younger, having some teachers in middle school that were trying to teach people how to do technical writing. And I was like, who would ever use this? Like maybe people that are teaching people how to use the shampoo on the back of their bottle. But it really is a lot like that. (laughs) You need Ah. to uh, be able to break down the steps so that people can follow directions very concisely and precisely so that they can get to the result that you want.
0: I love that analogy for people that aren't as familiar with what's the difference between technical writing and, you know, I guess fictional writing or something like that. That's a great way to frame it is, well, look at the back of a bottle of shampoo or any other product that has directions. And that in itself is technical writing, right? Being able to eloquently break down the key steps to use something or accomplish something or play something or reproduce something.
1: Technical writing I can do, fictional writing I cannot.
0: <laughs> you, you and me both, for sure. You mentioned it was short-lived. Was that just timing of the projects? Cause that, that's a thing, right? Like seasons come and go in a product's life cycle.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the project that I was working on, it was uh, a mobile game. Uh, the first one was called Enchant You and it was actually kind of like, well, like Harry Potter in a way, except that it's uh, choose your own adventure style. Or you're uh, a gal who's in this magical like university, and then it gets a little bit catty. But they were planning on expanding on that a little bit more. But the company had some other ideas. This was kind of my first introduction to how the game industry worked a little bit on that side. Uh, They didn't know about kind of the layoff culture or even the contract culture that they still encounter these days. And so they ended up cutting probably about a quarter of the company at that time. And because I was the last one in the doors, a full time person. I was the first one out the door and so me and at least two other people from the QA department among other people at the studio were laid off.
0: Unfortunately, that happens all too regularly in different game production companies and it's always tough for anybody to go through losing key team members that you develop a rapport with that were so productive and so vital to making high quality products and you you wish that things weren't this way, you wish that there was better Management practices or things like that. Because it costs a lot of money, to be fair, when you have to rehire and interview people just to find a right fit when you already had people that made it through those barriers and were key members of the team. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, Jill, when you made the transition from contract to full-time, what changes at that point in in your day-to-day?
1: For one, and it depends on the studio, of course, but at that time, there was, I think, a little bit of a separation between how contractors and full-time people were treated within the company first. So, you know, contractors couldn't go into certain meetings. You know, as soon as you become full-time, you can hear more about the business and some of those things that are going on. That's kind of been true in a couple of the studios that I've been at before Another thing, different benefits, of course, you're not getting them through the contractor themselves. And it just gives you a little bit more security for what it's worth. (laughs) Like I had finally found a good place because even before I was doing the game stuff, you know, I was kind of hopping around temporary jobs just to try things out. And so I was like, oh, I landed here. You know, I'm going to grow with these people. Like I had plans to uh, work with the manager and further my career in the path that I wanted to do, which was at the time exploring art a little bit more.
0: Tapping into that art history background. Mm -hmm. So there's layoffs that happen, just the general nature of the business, money coming in, not meeting projections, and then having to let go of the last people that were brought on as an easy way to assess, right? You wish there was a little bit more thought going into this thing to be like, okay, well, let's actually break down the people that are superstars and we really want to keep, right? And then have to make even harder decisions. You can kind of understand that perspective, but it seems like you got some sweet roles after towards after glue
1: something that amazed me when i came out of that first layoff was that people were so helpful to try to find uh, another role for me just because it's a small community especially here in the seattle area and if you make good connections not burn your bridges people want to help you they want you to land in a good spot and continue what you're doing and so i was amazed at that and so because of that attitude and the helpfulness and support from the people at the studio that i had met you know i was happy to continue looking in the game industry even though it felt Bad to be laid off.
0: <laughs> sure. By this point, you know, there was a few contract expirations. And then at this point, you went from contract to full time.
1: So I actually, I had a short stint at Microsoft. And it was about a week uh, where they did some formal onboarding unlike on, what I had done before. I had started maybe one or two days on a project, which at the time was uh state of decay. I think it was the first one.
0: Oh, yeah, by Undead Labs? Yeah,
1: which is terrible for me because I'm afraid of zombies.
0: (laughs) Did you know that that's what you were going to be working on? I
1: had no idea. It was fun to try out, (laughs) but I was just like, ooh.
0: (laughs) So this sounds like the universe was helping you out then.
1: Yeah, in a way, sparing me a little bit. (laughs) So yeah, I I stuck around for uh, those two days after the onboarding when Blue contacted me back again. And they said, we actually just had somebody, one of our QA people who survived the layoffs, he's moving over to another place. And so we have an opening. If you're uh, wanting to come back, we want you to join us full time again. I said, yeah, sure. You know, I enjoyed working there for the short time I did. And it's a full time role. I'll come back. So I, I did for a couple more months.
0: Was it kind of the same position, same role?
1: Same role, different team was helping out with a mobile MMO game at the time. And so it was learning to step up a little bit more at that time. It was actually learning to do test cases, which I hadn't done before. So writing those out, coming up with plans and talking a little bit more with the devs to come up with testing processes for that.
0: okay. So at this point, full time, you are working closer with devs. How would you break down a test plan? Like if you were to give me an example of a test plan for people out there listening.
1: My work at King, I think, has been a really big contributor to this stuff. It was allowing the KeyWay to really have a good in on some of the meetings with the devs to understand what was coming up on certain things. Being able to see the beginning thoughts and acceptance criteria for certain things helps you to start getting things in your mind. Just say, all right, here are the things that we need to do. Uh, Here are the features that we're going to be looking at. Uh, And start thinking around different scenarios of what does it take for something to be accepted in something? What needs to work for it? And what are the cases around that in the opposite direction? How do we know if something is failing gracefully if it doesn't work right? And how do people respond to that?
0: It's hard for me to imagine anybody that doesn't know King. I think, in fact, you've highlighted three of the biggest names in mobile development between Big Fish, Glue, and King. Uh And out of all those, King definitely stands out for their titles. Anybody who's played any mobile games, I'm sure, knows King Games.
1: The in-between for glue stuff and King stuff was going to different studios for different contract jobs. So I went to PopCap, which was helping out with mobile stuff for about a year or so. Went over to Bungie, uh, which was not mobile, but it was, uh, you know, something different, something to try in the AAA area for uh, Destiny 1 when that was releasing.
0: That seems like a very different game compared to the ones you have worked on. Yeah. And then coming into, you know, that first person shooter MMO kind of style console game, do you have to be good at the games you're QAing for? Or what would you have to tell to anybody kind of looking at making a big jump like that?
1: So I think that's a little bit dependent on the team, too. Like, I I know there are some situations where people expect you to be really passionate about that game or maybe have some knowledge of that genre to be able to properly test it. But at the same time, too, I think some of the fun of being able to try out these different studios and games is doing things that you don't normally always do or don't always enjoy because it gives you a lot of variety. It gives you a lot of different tools under your belt. As you go on to these other things, and it gives you new perspectives to start looking at. So, when I went into uh, Bungie, I had only played Halo once. I am not a first person shooter type person just because it makes me a little bit seasick.
0: Like, oh, okay. You get motion sickness. I get motion sure. sickness. That's so common.
1: In a case like that, like that might be a good reason not to go into something. But luckily for me, Destiny was a little bit more of a third-person view. So it wasn't as much of an issue as I thought it was going to be.
0: For certain modes, right? Like if you're riding the bike or things like this or doing like ultimate moves.
1: Yeah. So I, I will say as far as experience with the first-person shooter thing, you know, there are certain teams. We had a team that I sat next to that worked on difficulty. So to be able to help test that out, I think you do need to have a little bit more of experience to be able to say, all right, this feels, like I said, a good level for this level. If we go to a higher difficulty, you know, well, you would be able to get through as somebody who can play that type of level. I helped out with a couple of multiplayer situations, and I would always get my butt kicked on that stuff just because everybody was so good at it. But I'm like, you guys are missing out on the perspective of somebody who has never played this game or is hopping in for, you know, one or two times. What does it feel like to them?
0: For sure, the first-time user or the casual player, absolutely. Who's the key demographic for any game, for Mm -hmm. sure.
1: There's different perspectives that come into all this stuff. Do you have to be a pro? I don't think so. But you do have to understand, I think, where you're coming in how it'll help or not help you in some of those situations. I, I did end up going to King. Again, it was through word of mouth types things. Like I had a, a housemate that was working over there at the time. And I got reached out by the uh, recruiter while I was working at another place. He said, Hey, we'd love to have you join us. And I said, I can't right now I'm working on this other thing. I'm going to see how it goes. And he said, all right, we'll try again later. He actually contacted me again months later and he said, still want to join us? Still, you know, we can still get you in. And I said, you know, sure, let's do it this time. Cause like you said, at that time I had uh, moved over to not games, uh, just to try it out. Cause I kept hearing both sides of the coin. Oh, you should do games. You should not do games. Like just give it a try.
0: Who was telling you you should not do games?
1: Some people that have been in the industry before that hopped out, like there are some of the things where, you know, games can have a little bit of an impact on your work life balance, depending on the type of game or the type of work that you're doing. So for them, I think they felt like they had a little bit more freedom of stuff that they were doing. A little bit more boring. Yes, for them, but they said, you know, I feel like I can get paid more for the things I'm doing and not have to worry so much.
0: Hey, I could see how that would be tempting to hear from people outside of games to say, hey, you can do the same type of work, make more money and have better work-life balance. And so you decided to take them up on it and see if that was indeed true. And this is where you ended up working where?
1: There's a place called Ad Colonies. I had heard about them before because they actually put in ads for some of the mobile games that we did at one point. And so I had a, a different housemate that worked over there. And so he was trying to get me in.
0: I imagine completely different work.
1: Yeah, it was a very fast word. It was, it was very easy to be able to test that stuff. Uh, a lot of mobile stuff Yes, uh, a lot of just making sure these quick interactive ads would work correctly on different types of mobile devices, but it was compared to games, very unimaginative.
0: <laughs> but is this also a quality assurance style work?
1: It was, yeah. So okay. we were, we had engineers and QA in the office for that.
0: Okay. And you were embedded. How big was the team?
1: Or was it very big at all? I would say under ten, ten 10 people, maybe.
0: Nice. Okay. So very intimate.
1: Very intimate. The hard part was that it didn't seem like people enjoyed some of the things that they were doing versus, you know, being in game, It's all about passion and people enjoying the stuff that they're working on. And I love being able to have those random, random conversations during the day about some of the stuff you're working on, which you would never hear anywhere else in a workplace. So when uh, I saw that these people that I was working with at The other place, the non games work, it kind of was a little bit of a drain on me. And I was like, how do these people go about their work doing it just for the money? Like, where's the passion in the work? And I, you know, as much as they say that, you know, you got to have passion to be in the games industry, it does kind of ring true a bit.
0: I take it for granted, right? I've only known working games. I admit that it's not hard to get excited about the things we do or the things we get to work on and the opportunities we have. And so, to that respect, I can understand how. A place like a digital ad agency would pay you more money because how else are they going to lure you away from these other types of jobs that are out there, right? If not for at least having more money, you know, to, to make it worth your while to come and do this work that people tend to find harder to get excited about. Mm-hmm. Totally. That's totally fair. So how long did you last at Ad Colony doing that totally different work that was hard to get excited about?
1: That's a good question. I think it was somewhere between, uh, one to three months, something like that.
0: Damn. So that's essentially like not a lot of time to be fair, where you were like, ah, I gotta get out of here.
1: Yeah, no, it was, it made an up and an impact on me that I just, it didn't feel right to me. I felt like I was in the wrong place.
0: Well, that's awesome. You gave it a shot, right? Like People were like, hey, you should get out of games. Life is better on the other side. And you went, checked it out for yourself, got a taste of it and decided, nah, I want something different. What was that something different you wanted after Ad Colony?
1: Well, like I said, I got reached out to about the King job and uh, I had friends over there that were already over there they seemed to be enjoying the stuff that they did and the company they were working with i said sure i'll give that a try candy crush that's a big name
0: (laughs) (laughs) you think just a little bit yeah (laughs) just a little bit
1: (laughs) so I, i ran over there and i joined them that was actually right at the time when uh this this little studio was acquired by them and so The studio itself in Seattle is called Z2, and they weren't working on Candy Crush itself. They were still doing the types of games that they were doing, uh, which is mid-core games. Didn't never touch Candy Crush.
0: Are there any games that are out that you can talk about that you helped work on?
1: The last one I worked on actually got sunsetted while I was there. So I I was with them for about four, a little over four years. And King got acquired by Activision Blizzard, and not too long after that, there was a company decision to kind of change directions in uh, some of the things that we doing. And so our studio ended up getting cut out from that deal. And so the studio was shut down. And I was part of a handful of people that were there to sunset the game that we were on, which was called Paradise Bay, which was on different mobile devices.
0: Okay, but you were there for a good group of time. And when we were talking earlier... I got a sense that you really grew in your role there, in your craft of quality assurance and even getting to branch out into what you're doing now or exploring some different interests. Can you walk me through what that was like, like being able to work with devs and being able to kind of grow and find other areas as a result of play tests and and things like this?
1: I felt like it was a little bit scrappy in the beginning. We had a, a small team QA, that were working in the open office environment with our devs. I was originally on a project that never got released, but people were very excited about doing this thing. It was it was a lot of fun to work on just because it was a lot of had a lot of character to to it and uh, we were just pouring our heart and soul into this thing. And so that project in particular, we did a lot of a lot of extra work on because, you know, part of the challenge on that one was kind of finding the fun of the game finding what is it that makes this game what it is. And it had a hard time kind of finding its voice. And so we did a lot of different things, a lot of different changes. I got really connected to the team, working with all those different disciplines. At that time, I switched over to doing live stuff. And so helping to uh, kind of manage some of the A-B testing that they were doing, learning about deployments, creating processes for that stuff. And so it was expanding a little bit more to my tool belt in the QA realm.
0: These are super important skills for anybody on a dev team to learn and to be able to put that on your resume, right? To be like, hey, I can help you build out processes for getting up and running on a, in a multiplayer experience and managing builds and conducting A-B tests, right? So for people out there that aren't that familiar, there's all types of ways that you can segment your builds so that countries in South America see something completely different from countries countries in Europe and what they're playing, right? Even to the point of the app icon itself, right? Mm-hmm. And seeing which one people click on more in the app store.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a lot of growth during that time for me. And I think a lot of the people that we were working together with, you know, after that game didn't make it to launch. We kind of regrouped and said, all right, so what are we going to do next? Well, a group of people were trying to figure out what to do with the next game. I got moved on to another project, which is Paradise Bay. And they said, well, we like what you did with the live ops stuff. We want you to do that and help them out because, you know, the game has already launched, but we're still seeing a lot of fires here and there. And so we want to see if we can smooth those out a little bit. So it was joining a new team, learning how they learned and adjusting to any of the different tools, processes that they had and seeing what we can do to improve on that stuff. And uh, a lot of those different things will help uh, QA people if they're ever interested in things like uh, production, which is, you know, one of those steps that a lot of people tend to see is that QA molds into production because of that sort of skill set.
0: 100%, Jill, I'm glad you bring that up, right? For a lot of people, QA is a wonderful step in the door to then find what excites you, what skills, what are your superpowers? And I've seen a lot of people grow into design roles, people grow into engineering roles, people grow into art roles. Definitely a lot of people grow into producer roles, totally see that happen much more often than not. Which RPG path did you end up going on?
1: (laughs) Uh, I've had a lot of people telling me they saw me as a producer and maybe that's something that's still in my future.
0: Does that interest you? Does being a producer interest you?
1: I mean, like mentioned in the beginning. I was interested in user research, I I started to discover, like, you know, my interest in art was always still there, but it kind of fell on the wayside for a bit. And while I was working on this first team at King, I heard about a role, which is UX, UI, and I'd never heard about that before. And I was like, it was always just UI, like, what is UX? And so, you know, I talked to some of the people that were doing that role and, uh, you know, it was focusing on the user side of things, kind of coming up with the flows of certain things and just really having kind of that empathetic view of making sure that people can understand the way things are supposed to be and not be too difficult for the reasons that they shouldn't be.
0: To someone from the outside looking in that is a consumer of these games and is used to playing whatever king game of choice you want to cite, how would you describe to them poor UX versus better UX? Or how can someone spot like, Ooh, they don't even have a UX team versus like, oh, you can tell that they have a UX team looking at these things.
1: The example that I think a lot of people might use for good UX, and it's not in games, is like look in Spotify. Like that kind of transformed how you're looking at music. Like now we have uh, a platform that will customize certain lists for you based on your history or uh, certain things that you've liked. And it makes it effortless to be able to find and discover new things. And that's Part of what, you know, having good UX is, is making things effortless in as many ways as possible. But uh, at the same time too, I feel a little conflicted sometimes with those kind of designs because, you know, we're humans. We got to learn somehow.
0: <laughs> yeah, we are shielded from all the power user settings and buttons and categories and things like this to dive in, which that's how I grew up, right? I grew up in the era, probably much like yourself, right? I grew up in the era where... Before UX was even a a profession, and a lot of this interface was built by engineers. And so you essentially had to be, have the mind of an engineer to use any of this stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's actually a good example there is uh, if you want to find something that is UX focused versus not, uh, sometimes you can look at things that engineers have built without having a designer on there because... Uh, they'll say, you know, it functions, right? It does the work. Um, But if you got to go through, it's one, not pretty, that's your UI there. Is it easy to find things? Is there a hierarchy of how you're organizing things on the page? That's a little bit of that, making it easy for people to read. And then, you know, thinking about these days and hopefully before accessibility, like with the audience that you're trying to reach, is it easy for them to access this stuff as well?
0: I'm glad you brought up accessibility. It's easy for us to design things for ourselves and what we are used to, right? We're fully abled people with two hands, 10 fingers. It's important to account for less abled people, all types of things, right? Like people that have sight challenges, hearing challenges, and things like this. People that have to play with one hand and all types of different controller configurations. So I'm glad you brought up accessibility. I'm curious if there was anything you guys did on that team team for uh, accessibility features.
1: One of our guys on the team who has color blindness, and so we often go to him for uh, some of those feedback on making sure that things could be still readable for somebody who can't quite see the same colors the way that some of us others would.
0: That's a great call. I've had a few guests on the show point out their particular color blindness. There's a spectrum of it, and what colors, when mushed together or next to each other, become hard to distinguish. Right? Like I can't tell that's red when it's next to green. Right? It becomes like an orange color. Right? Like, I don't. I don't know. Right.
1: That also ties into, you know, some of the things that I was trying to do for the project as well. You know, I, I got interested in UX and so I was starting to teach myself some of the foundations for some of that. And I, I went up to our design manager and I said, you know, how can I get into this for you guys? And said, so we don't, we don't need another UX person right now. And I said, well, how about research? Like, I, I don't think we've done a lot of research on some of this stuff. It'd be good to hear some of the feedback from actual people that are using it. Because we saw a lot of the, the numbers on things, the data that we get back from uh, certain events fire off when certain actions are done, but we don't hear the user's voice, and so I started to put some surveys together so we could reach out to users and get their feedback on things, which is uh, a good way to be able to test out the usability, the accessibility, and make sure that things are feeling good for the players.
0: The way to go on taking initiative and identifying a gap or a need and a chance for you to grow your skill set, and not just sit idly by waiting for something to be given to you, right? To be like, Hey, here's some UI UX needs we have, do you want it? Right. And, and kind of taking the bull by the horns for lack of a better analogy to put your intention and your desires out there and see that there's an opportunity for you and to, to lead user research. So awesome. Because look at where you are at today. Right. Like now this is your role. You're a user researcher.
1: User researcher. Yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) That was advice I got from someone before. Like if you want to get into something, if you're passionate about something, you cannot just wait around for something to happen. Like you got to go out and do it. Like you got to put in the work for it. When people see that you can do that, showing off some of that work, that's what gets you into the role. And I've seen other people from QA move into different roles because of things like that.
0: Heck yeah. This is how people navigate these volatile roles where it's the easier decision to make when you have to break down your team and you simply just look at, hey, who are the last people on the team? Okay, this will be the first way for me to get down to this magic number of headcount, right? To save budget or something like that. and this is how you make yourself more valuable, uh-huh. right? You add value to your name and your contribution to the team that it makes them hard to say, oh, Jill came on at this day, but look at all these other things that she's doing for us. She's too valuable, right? For us to replace her would take X amount of time, X amount of dollars and, and things like this, right? So this is something that Benefits us all to hear, right? To never get complacent and to always find work that needs to be done or that's not being done, right? And kind of volunteer for it and put yourself in that position.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of one of those people that always goes and finds something to do anyway, but I think it's good practice, even for QA people, whether they're QA career driven or if they're looking to explore as well, like just having that knowledge of those different areas will make you a better thinker all around and being able to understand some of the issues that can come up and to be able to talk to the people in the same way that there's good communication, the way that you're uh, giving feedback, like it is super valuable to the devs to be able to have those conversations with QA like that.
0: Absolutely. Feedback is the name of the game, is how our products get better. And we can all get better at giving constructive feedback as well as receiving feedback. I've seen people get really defensive about having their ideas challenged or picked apart. And really, there's no end to getting better at receiving and giving feedback. Particularly, definitely in written form, I would suspect.
1: Written form. I mean, you can say that in uh, tickets. Like that's one of the communication ways that we did it a lot for a number of places. So things that come up in the comments, even some of the bugs that people write sometimes, it's to become a good QA person. I think it's in the beginning, understanding the difference between criticizing somebody's work versus, like you say, giving it like a good actionable feedback that is not meant to harm or hurt anybody, but meant to help the product. You know, it's a little bit of tone. Tell- a little bit of being able to have that good relationship, the working relationship with people to be yeah. able to give that kind of feedback because if you don't have that, it may come off as a little bit standoffish or like, I know this because I'm better than you in some way and it's not mm-hmm. like that. It shouldn't be like that.
0: Yeah, for sure. like writing can come off in a completely different way than how it would have if it was spoken. And I'm curious, two questions come to mind is how many bugs would you say you wrote while you were at King? And as well as I would like for you to give me an example of like a poorly worded bug versus like a well-written bug.
1: For my time at King, I could not give you a number. Like I'm sure somebody was tracking that, but I do remember at one time somebody had a graph of the number of tickets that we wrote in. And I think mainly because I was doing the live work, which meant a lot of things that would come in from like things that we're responding to, things that were coming in from CS, my own stuff, stuff that I'm coming in from the devs. I had a lot more input because of all that stuff among my already hardworking ways. And so the graph showed that I probably took about half of the pie on that pie graph for the tickets, but it's hard to say that that represents anything. Cause I was also there probably longer than some of the other people as well.
0: If we just take like, what was that over the course of the project or the course of a year or a course of months?
1: That might have been a couple of years. I can't quite remember.
0: Okay. Would you say it was like hundreds or thousands?
1: Probably thousands.
0: <laughs> I just like to give people a sense of this is not an easy job. This is a job that requires a lot of writing and and management and self-discipline and organizational skills and communication skills.
1: Yeah. And then you were asking about like a good bug versus a bad bug. It depends a little bit on the thing you're working on. Because if you take even my experience at Bungie, I was told to write bugs in two different ways over there. And it was dependent on the team and the needs and how much detail they needed. And so with Bungie, they actually had tools over there that kind of helps provide information because I'm such a large geek. It would give even like specific coordinates for where things would happen within a game. So that's how detailed some of that stuff was. And then being able to say, you know, it happened here, it happened this many times, uh, how many times you can reproduce it, how urgent is the bug versus I think when I worked, did my work with the cinematics team, they didn't mm-hmm. need all that stuff, but they did need something that was clear and concise. You don't want to be too wordy on that stuff and somebody wants to read a novel Mm -hmm. But if there's enough good reason to have that detail, put it in the notes, make sure that you have links for things. So it's easy for people to jump in at a certain point that they need to or get to a certain page or uh, some sort of resource that you're using. If it's another external tool that helps them get there, put that stuff in because it makes it easier and you'll get thanked for it.
0: Okay, so 2019, there's like business reorganizing and restructuring between King, Z2, Activision coming in. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking for work.
1: I'm looking for work. So I I stayed on the project for probably another five or six months with about, I I would say, six other people so we can shut down the game and give the story a proper ending. And so I was helping out Kind of with the last minute stuff and also job hunting at the same time, but because the rest of the company was already out looking for work, there were a lot of people that were helping out with job fairs and reaching out recruiters and all that. And I kind of missed the boat on some of that stuff because I said, I got to stick around for a couple more months. And so by the Um, time I finished that contract, it was like, okay, well, what's still available We had ArenaNet that also had layoffs days after our studio got shut down. And so there were a lot of people in the area looking around for jobs. And so at the time that I got let down from the contracts, there weren't too many things that were the things that I was looking for. So I was like, well, I'd love to be able to get into UX, user research.
0: You found your little particular niche or area of expertise that is a growing field, is super valuable in this space. Not a lot of experts, right? Yep. It's kind of right.
1: It turns out it's a, a little bit competitive. It's a little bit of a, a niche at the time. And so, you know, did a looking around, but I wasn't finding anything, especially with the amount of experience that i would had. So I had a old coworker who said, hey, we have a role at this place called Car Kingdom and they need some QA help. Like if you want to help them out, I think there's some potential to grow over there. And I knew about the company because I was a frequent goer of their stores. They are both an in-person store where they sell board games and have a restaurant over there. So uh, a lot of the gaming community of both types kind of goes over there and just just relaxes, plays some games. But they also have an e-commerce site where they sell and buy Magic the Gathering cards online. And so... I I knew about them because I used to participate in uh, what they called the gauntlet, which mm. was uh, a charity event that they would do here once a year, and it would benefit one local charity group yeah. around here and it would change up throughout the year. And that was something I always kind of believed in. And I said, we should participate in that. So I got some people together uh, when I was at King and we participated in some of the tournaments, which was an all day board game tournament against other Dean studios and uh, you're raising money for a good cause. And you're competing against other people who are passionate about games.
0: What's the name of this thing? And does it happen every year when there's not a pandemic going on?
1: It's called the Gauntlet, which was that particular tournament. And when I was at Card Kingdom, I was a volunteer for that specific foundation or a soon-to-be foundation. So I was able to continue helping them expand on that stuff. And when the pandemic did happen, we did uh, a streamed event so we could still do something like that. It was the first time we'd ever done it, but now we know that we can do it. So most of the time it's in person, but there's always a workaround.
0: Heck yeah. I want to play games against other studios for (laughs) bragging rights (laughs) and charity.
1: And a trophy. They give you a trophy for it too.
0: Oh yes. I'm all about trophies. So this is called the gauntlet. The gauntlet. So you get in at Card Kingdom and they are not a, a quote unquote game development studio but they're more a board game store that has an online presence as well that buys and sells board games. So you are coming in to enhance all of their digital online stuff.
1: Yeah. So okay. we, are, we are remaking their websites and we are working on some of their internal tools uh, because like you said, when uh, they made some of that stuff, it was built by engineers who didn't have uh, a lot of thought for the design of it. And so we wanted to update that so that it could be a little bit more current and more easy to use for. Okay. I, I came on as a, as a QA lead originally. That Ooh, transformed yep. within a couple of months into a QA manager because the company had never had somebody with QA experience in that role. Like they had some people within the studio. We said, we're going to be QA we think this is how it works. Let's do that.
0: <laughs> we think this is how you should do a job. Yeah. Do a good job.
1: So they brought me in to be the person that's like, all right, you are going to be QA everything. Like you are the person that goes to make everything. Like it's all yours. Like just round up. You get to make it all up.
0: This sounds amazing, Joe. Yes. Like this sounds super amazing where it's like, hey, you have over a decade of experience in the field plus plus. Plus, you, you use a research and UX, and now you're coming off this team that you essentially are the owner and you get to build the department and the processes and the structure. How do you even dive into that?
1: You go back to the basics first. Like we had the one guy there who was uh, doing things and you could already tell like. He had a lot of good foundations for the way that QA think and just his detail for certain things. And uh, he also had a little bit of coding experience as well. And so he was able to, you know, talk to devs very easily and dig up some information from our website. And so that was a good start right there. And so we kind of just said, all right, well, let's go talk about how do we write these tickets? What type of information do we need? How do we get that from the devs? And how do we communicate back with them? You know, starting to come up with processes of like when devs are done with their work. When does that go into QA? Who makes those changes? Where does QA get their information from? Like, do we have this documented somewhere? Do we go into the files themselves and look at it? And then let's talk about deployments. Like, it seemed like there was maybe not quite some processes in that area. And so I said, "Oh boy, that needs to change." <laughs>
0: sure, so, sure.
1: Being able to talk to all the team members, it was a very open team, and just saying, "All right, well, let's see what can we do to make this work for us." So, you know, we'll give things a try, and if they don't work. Let's see why they didn't work. Let's uh, talk about that and see what we can shift out of that. And so I kind of played a little bit of um, QA manager, building up the department, hiring and cleaning those processes, being communicated between different departments, helping out here and there with production stuff. It was running meetings, uh, doing the scrum ceremonies.
0: Yeah, more producer type stuff.
1: Yeah, it was uh, managing Jira, like coming up with the dashboards and uh, putting things in format for the tickets and making sure that People were getting the information that they needed. And then it was also designing because there were no designers. And so I, again, kind of took the helm on user research. I set up play tests that we can do for the entire company, which had never really happened before, and did those uh, one-on-one interviews with people so we can get some, like, really in-depth feedback from people and building up the foundation for UX for when somebody did come into that.
0: That's amazing, Jell. There's so much you're learning and developing and being able to pull from your experience and give to this role. Like you were definitely wearing multiple hats. How big was the team? And then how big was your team that you were managing?
1: The team itself, I think by the time I left, it was probably 18, 20 people. It wasn't a very big team. When uh, somebody told me, you know, there's a dev team at Carkeenum, I had no idea. Like I just... This is something I never even considered. I was like, wait, this is a porn game store, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. But somebody's got to engineer all the infrastructure.
1: Yeah. And as far as the keyway team goes, you know, we started off with one guy there. And by the time I left, we had uh, three, three other guys.
0: That's awesome. And you you hired them. Four. The I'm sorry.
1: There are four guys.
0: Four. Okay. So your team, you were a team of one that branched out into a team of five. Mm-hmm. And you hired them, on board of them and set up all their processes for managing their workload.
1: Yeah, I was, it, it took a lot of me going back to when I came into QA and just saying, what are the things I wish I'd know when I come into this thing? Um, mm-hmm. onboarding it's is, a good place to start. is a huge thing, uh, especially, you know, during the pandemic, it was a bit difficult, uh, and I, I know there's a lot of places that are hiring more senior roles because they know how difficult it is to hire somebody from scratch remotely. And that is, something that was one of the challenges I kind of had to figure out.
0: Yeah. What type of tools or processes did you implement to draw from the things you didn't have when you were first starting in your earlier roles?
1: So for this role in particular, it was especially difficult because they have all sorts of processes through different departments that don't interact usually with the dev team. And so because our tools are going out to these different departments with their own processes themselves. For me, it was a little bit of wrangling to understand what are their processes so that we can understand that because uh, sometimes being in QA means putting yourself in the shoes of the people that are going to use it. And if you don't understand how people are going to be using something, what type of situations they get themselves into, you're going to miss some of the things and issues will sneak by. Because that company is divided into different locations. We're not all in the same building. Some things weren't always documented. It was a lot of wrangling around for that stuff to just say, all right, well, we need this information for people that are coming in, not just for our team, but for everyone else as well, just so they get a whole picture of what does the life cycle of this product look like from beginning to end. And it is especially useful for us just because we have to have that viewpoint.
0: And when you say the life cycle of this product, what's specifically the product?
1: On the website side of things, we're buying and selling Magic: The Gathering cards, and so different processes for each one of those.
0: Okay, so I go to I go to Card Kingdom, and I'm buying and selling Magic cards, and so each each card or each set. How do I how do I divvy those out?
1: Uh, you can. Well, it depends on what you're buying.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, curious. Yeah. Like, yeah, well what's the what's the, the breadth of products that I can buy?
1: Yeah. So if you go on the website, like, you know, they have uh like the booster packs, they got these like um and I haven't played Magic in like twenty years, so I was like reloading wow. stuff too. Um uh, yeah. so I may not even have all this stuff correct, but you know, there's like the um uh like the commander sets, um, they got the booster sets, so they got the smaller packs. Uh, individual cards, you can buy those, you can buy them in bulk. Um, there are, like, so many different types of cards, um, so many different generations of the cards. And so yeah. you need to make sure that all the new stuff is in there correctly, all the old stuff is still working correctly. Um, and
0: So it's like managing that database, managing that inventory. It is a lot of
1: database. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah, I could, I that. I could, I, I would... I can definitely respect that. That's that's amazing.
1: Yeah. So testing was a bit different on that one. One, because it was a, a platform I hadn't done before. And two, because there was a level of complexity that was different than I had done before. Still a little bit of that creativity that came with games, but at the same mm-hmm. time, too. It was a challenge because everything is so interconnected with each other. And because there are so many things to test, we had to bring in automation, which is something I hadn't done before personally, but you can see the value in it when there's so much that you got to touch.
0: Absolutely. Yes. How can we have gotten this far in an interview about QA and not have touched on automation and the latest and greatest trends?
1: Well, it's probably more because it's a scenario that I didn't have a lot of experience myself like it's something we had tried to bring into at king but on my particular project we weren't able to do that it was more one of our other projects that did a bit more on that but yeah that's that's a whole area that i just it, it gets a little bit more technical than my skills uh, allow me at the moment
0: for sure yeah i always have i've always had the conversation of like yeah man i could write a script that can spawn a, a dude and you know drive him to all these different edges of the map and generate events and then spit all that out in a log right and then you know that that gets chopped up by some machine and then you know just kind of automation testing really to be like you know the world loads the collisions there you don't fall out you know uh, and all these other triggers are successfully completed so that i've always talked about that stuff i've never actually gotten around to setting it up
1: yeah that's that's (laughs) part of the problem like there's so much that you can do with that it's being able to have somebody who can dedicate the time to it. And that's something that we did it was that first guy that we had in QA, uh, we moved him into the SDET role, uh, for automation, uh, because he had that good mindset, uh, like, I think in order to do that you gotta have that same, uh, ability to plan certain things. And, uh, that technical writing will help you out because it's going to be a lot of what you do.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. I can totally see how your writing the directions that an SDET, so like software development, engineer, and test could write down and build an algorithm and some tools for, right? Uh Like that it's it's definitely a one, two punch there.
1: Throughout my career, you know, I've done a lot of learning on my own, but I've also had a lot of people that reached out to me about questions of You know, what is it like to be in QA or how do I get into something like that? Or tell me about some of the methodologies or tools that you're using. Like I'm always open to some of that stuff. I actually just had somebody reach out the other day just to say, hey, can you be a mentor to me? And I love being able to do that and just see where they're at, what kind of problems that they need to solve. And um, that's what QA is, a lot of problem solving. And so I think of it as a wolf pack kind of discipline and being able to have something that you can bounce ideas off of and talk to about this stuff is really useful. Uh, so, you know, if anybody needs a conversation or to figure out where they need to be to get themselves into a certain spot in their career, like, I'm always, was just happy to chat about it.
0: Awesome, Jill. Yeah, because you've worked in a lot of different places up here in the Seattle area and seem to be very well connected. Are there any groups or organizations that you would call out that were helpful or that people should look into joining if they're looking to grow in this space.
1: I think the best thing for anybody and especially QA to do is to listen uh, network like just talk to the people around you talk to your teams get to know them because that will one make it so much easier to work with them two make it more enjoyable and three it'll, it'll open up doors for later.
0: Yeah, that's an awesome call out, Joe. I've never turned down any person who's reached out to me via email or Slack internally that's asking questions about, hey, John, you designed the system. This is what I'm seeing. I'd like to know more, right? Or, hey, I'd like to know how this works. Do you have any documentation, any example maps that I can load up? I love proactive people that reach out to me and I'm always eager to educate more people how something works, something how something's meant to work, right? Because that just empowers that person to better contribute to what they see, what they talk about, what they report, what they experience, right? And even bounce ideas off of, right? right? To be like, hey... I meant this to work this way. And I like, well, actually, as I play it, it's playing out very different from what you meant. And then we can, and then I'd love to bounce ideas off that person. So, totally plus one that notion of connect with your teammates. There's definitely a broad spectrum of people that are open to connecting or like to be more like headphones on, heads down, working all the time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, everybody works in different ways and has their own attitudes about how they communicate, but just be able to understand people work in different ways and respect those boundaries if there are boundaries too.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, how did you enjoy? leading and managing your team, because there's, there's essentially two types of people out there, right? There's people that really enjoy people managing and mentoring and helping people grow and share their wisdom and help them get to the next level. And then there's people that are not that way and really like to be kind of the individual contributor, right? That I see routes to just be like, Hey, I just, I just want to do my work. I like to collaborate, but I don't want to be responsible Mm -hmm. for other people's careers. Yeah.
1: I've done a lot of bouncing back and forth on that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think a person could be bold, but, you know, they might find that you like one better than the other, or you may find just a point where you say, all right, I'm going to transition to this this other thing. I really did enjoy doing the IT work, but for me, it came to a point after doing personal long where I wanted to try something a little bit different. When I moved into the lead role, that was a little scary for me at first because uh, one I grew up being a very shy person. Like I'm not that person that was always going out and I wasn't very vocal. People used to think I was a mute.
0: Did you have siblings growing up?
1: I had one younger sibling, and I was not an only child. <laughs>
0: okay, so you you were the, you were the oldest.
1: Yeah, but yeah, it's it surprises me these days just how far I've come as a person and um, developed myself for all that stuff. Because, like said, younger me would say, "Hey, what you're in the game industry and you're teaching people to do this stuff?" Like, I would have never dreamed of that stuff.
0: I love doing that part. I love doing that that exercise of what would you know twenty twenty one you go back to 2005 let's say version of you as like words of wisdom from the future
1: yeah i mean you never know where it's going to take you but you know again when i was a kid I, I wanted to be a sports coach uh so that kind of applies to uh, a bit of the leadership and mentorship is that um you i mean even if you're working one-on-one with somebody sometimes it's easier than a group but you're uh, you know hoping to develop somebody in their skills and it's uh, a really neat team to be able to see somebody start off at a certain point and then just, just continue to grow beyond your expectations.
0: All right, Joe, if you're ready for our lightning round... I hope. <laughs> what is the last game that you finished?
1: Detroit Become Human. I just started up with my housemates, uh, Returnal, for PS5.
0: Yeah, I got to get that. Shout out to the How Smart guys. Those guys are awesome. It's, I've seen that it's game cool. get a lot it's of great press. Game. yeah. I'm looking forward to playing Returnal. Detroit Become Human, was it? Is it Quantic Dream?
1: Actually, I don't remember. It's the same people who did Heavy Rain.
0: Yeah, Quantic Dream. I love those games. Any like game that I know has an ending, <laughs> there's multiple endings, but at least I know has an ending and it's going to be a great narrative and an interactive experience where I get to make decisions. I love. Where would you rate that game in terms of the experience, what it gave you?
1: I really did enjoy it. Like I was not expecting to be able to see the different paths of everything. I thought that was so neat, especially as somebody who's like thinking about design systems and all that stuff. You're just like, oh, well, what happens if I had done that other thing? Like, I wonder what would have happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it gives you that replayability if you want it.
0: What's the last book you read?
1: I am finishing up the second giant chunk of Invincible, which if you haven't tried it already, Amazon uh, just released the animated series for that. There's a, a season that just came out for that. So it's graphic uh, oh, novel. Uh, it's a little bloody.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that's an understatement. Yes, I binged Invincible. I had no idea of the book, and it was just there, right? And I, I woke up on a Saturday morning. I was like, Oh, I'm. I feel like reliving my old childhood and watching some cartoons on a Saturday morning. And that first episode gripped me and ended in a way I did not expect. Yeah, and I was I was great. ready. Ah. <laughs> I was ready for the whole ride. That is a fantastic story. I do. I wouldn't mind getting into the novel.
1: Yeah, I mean they were on sale, so I was like, all right, I will read through all of them. I prefer to have things physical versions, especially if I'm going to lend it out to people. But that costs a lot of money, so I was like, all right, digital. Here we go. <laughs>
0: that's what you give up when you go full digital, right? Simple fact is, I want to buy discs and I want to be able to loan them out to people when I have finished the game.
1: Yeah. And then actually, uh, finishing that up, I just pulled this one up last night. Uh, which is, where is it? What everybody is saying? This is, uh. Oh, is
0: that like a body language book?
1: It's a body language book written by an ex FBI agent.
0: Oh yeah. I'm going to have to hit you up and follow through on that. Let me know <laughs> if any, any insight that you gain from there. Yeah. Cause especially over zoom conferences day in, day out these days, there's a lot of little subtleties that are easy to miss. And anybody that works with people can benefit from picking up these things for sure. Great call out. Thanks for that.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited for that one, too. Especially, you know, as we're all coming out of this and being able to understand how people are feeling. And so, you know, kind of come out from our homes again.
0: What is the thing that you enjoy the most about this job?
1: For QA, I think it's, it's always the people. Like I like said. For me, it's always been a little bit of a, uh, it's a group sport where you build such a good community with, I mean, every single place that I've been to, I keep in, t- in contact with all those guys. Even from the ones I've worked with like nine years ago, like two of them I ended up rooming with later on. One of them I still, you know, keep in contact with, say happy birthday and we share stupid things together. One of them got me into three different jobs. Like
0: Who, who's the, who's your contact? You?
1: Uh, her name is Minno. She's helping out right now at uh, turn 10.
0: Shout out to the Forza guys, I think. Yeah. In the off chance that Minot listens to this episode, I want to give her the ground and the claim and her roses for having been a great networking person in your career.
1: Keyway work is one of those things where uh, if you look at a job requirement, they'll ask you to have a sense of humor. It's, <laughs> it's needed sometimes because of the work you do. It can be a little repetitive sometimes. It can be a little rough, a little stressful, but if you're a good company, you know, you having a good time.
0: Plus a thousand is to bring someone who can lighten the mood of the air on a team for work that can be quite challenging at times for sure. What's your favorite part about working from home?
1: It's probably me being a bit lazy, not having to wear jeans. I wear whatever I want. And uh, whenever I am doing a stand-up meeting, I can manage to turn off the camera. I can do squats and get my exercise in. <gasps>
0: Oh, that is a pro tip. That is a power <laughs> tip right there. Heck yeah. Bust out some uh, calisthenics. I like that a lot. That That's a good one. I want to take that with me, Chell. So you're saying that you wouldn't just feel free to bust out some squats in an actual team stand up at the office?
1: Uh, I actually used to do uh, push-up challenges at least two different places. And so you're not going to keep me down from that, but I don't think everyone wants to. So I'll do them on my own if I have to.
0: What's your push-up challenge? Like
1: at the first place, it was one of the other gals that I worked with wanted to, you know, work on being a little buffer. And so I'd, after stand ups, go and do at least 20 push ups every morning. And then we go off and do our thing. Uh, at Car Kingdom, we did the same thing where I was like, all right, dev team, let's do our uh, push ups and then uh, we'll do some uh, planks. We'll see if we can hold them for a little bit yes. longer. will yes. increase every single day. And whoever has the most improvement over the month, we'll get them a trophy.
0: Oh, Joe, that's fantastic. Please, I encourage you wholeheartedly to bring that to WB. <laughs>
1: it
0: it reminds me of something we used to do at Midway back in the day, my first job. We had like a four o'clock group of guys or group of developers at every, we had it in the Outlook calendar and it was every day, four o'clock, we called it the Push Up circle. I wish we came up with a, a better name, but you know, we would all gather in some open area. And we would get down in a circle and kind of all be in plank position. And I think we would work either up to ten or down from ten. I don't remember what it was, right? So somebody would go crank out ten and then I I, I let's say we would we would work up to ten. So we would start at one and then the next person goes one, then one, then one. Oh, one. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to two, 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 two. So, so the pushups are not that bad. It's the plank. It's holding the plank that whole time while you're waiting for your turn to come around. You, you actually want the pushups to come so that you can actually like get down a little bit. Yeah. But we would all be dead by the time we got to 10 for sure. And it, it was a great, it's just a great way to break up the day, laugh it out with some people, you know, talk trash. And like, oh, we'll be back tomorrow, you know, looking forward to this. Or, oh, I was. You know, just to get the juices flowing, the brain, yeah. not, you know thinking differently into this. Thanks for reminding me about that. I think I'll do something to bring that back to my team and please bring it to WB for sure,
1: yeah. no i mean if if nothing else, I think it's important to remember that uh, you got to get in those things that are good for you too, like whether it's that mental break or just to remember to uh, get out of your seat every once in a while and uh, just do something physical because balance in the day, I think is important.
0: What is the thing you miss the most about being in the office?
1: It's the people. I mean, at the moment, I don't have an office, so I can't say what specifically. But it's it's always uh, you know just those random interactions you can do throughout the day. Like I used to like be able to just wander around the building for a little bit, interacting with people you don't always get to see, get to see what they're working on, goof off a little bit. I used to give people <laughs> stickers for uh, you know any big accomplishes accomplishments that they do. So I give them a, a giant golden star and so uh, just leaving those at people's desks. You know they feel good about that.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I cannot. The shame of how much value getting a gold star means. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know if it was drilled in us when we were in kindergarten, getting a little gold star by our name on a little chart when we did something. Yeah, the
1: stickers are awesome.
0: 100 percent. one hundred percent. We had something like this at my gym at Experimental Mental where, I don't know, some consecutive days of working out, you would get a star by your name. And we had a sticker book and had all the types of stickers you can imagine. And it was ridiculous how much time I would take to pick out just the right sticker for that day, right? Like sometimes it was an animal day. Another time it was kind of like a colorful day. Who knew?
1: Yeah, see, my favorite was when I actually had uh scratch and snip stickers one day. <laughs> there were wow. little monkeys with bananas. And so people would put them on their computers. And you just see everybody like sniffing their computer screen. It was just <laughs> it was so fun.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Last question in the lightning round. Are you ready for it? Ready. If you weren't doing this, which is user research at WP, what would you be doing? What, what is your alternate calling in life?
1: At this point, you know, I, said I, could, I could always go back into my original goal, which was art conservation. But at the same time, too, you know, maybe something just off. Like I, I used to do uh, some work with like nonprofits and all that. And so doing something that can help out others, I think something that can be meaningful is something that's important to me.
0: That's great. Where can people connect with you, reach out to you, see your work? I think you have a pretty awesome website. Where can people take you up on that being a mentor thing?
1: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at JellBell, J-E-L-L-B-E-L. You can find me on LinkedIn, Angelica Baca. should be able to see it by the experience uh, here in the Seattle area.
0: Great. And then your website?
1: Website is JellBaca.com, but that's with one L J E L. B-A-C-A dot com.
0: Sweet. I'll make sure to link all of those in the show notes for the people who are interested. And finally, if you had a great time, something we do here on the show, Gel, is we let you nominate someone to fall out of the play area behind you. And so anybody who has at least shipped one game and you think would make an awesome guest on the show.
1: Well, I would take you up on your mission to potentially find a designer that worked on the original World Combat. If you could do that, that would (sighs) be awesome.
0: (laughs) Oh, challenge accepted. There is a recent documentary that came out about Midway. I think it was called Insert Coin. Yeah, it had all those guys on there. And uh, I follow Ed Boone on Twitter. So I'll, I'll definitely see if I can work some magic in the network and dig up some of those people. I'm sure they might even be at EA if I look hard enough. Thank you so much for that nomination. That's exciting. (laughs) I look forward to that. I'm going to track down some original Mortal Kombat devs and bring them on, or at least invite them. All I can do is invite them and hopefully wish that they accept.
1: Yeah, I hope so too.
0: (laughs) That's a great one, Jill. Thank you so much for that. Are there any last words you have? Uh, I think you've been an awesome guest. Thank you so much for being brave enough to be, to come on the show as I reached out during this time where people were talking about like, you know, QA are not really game developers and I put my foot down with a bunch of other friends that are like, the hell they aren't, you know, I'm going to bring a bunch on the show to talk about what you guys do and how important it is to the craft. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you have any last words for the listeners out there that you want to share?
1: I mean, I I agree with what you just said. Like QA is definitely a part of that family, the developer family. People just say, you know, it's a good entry level job to get into the roles that you want to. And that's that's not always true. Like, sure, it is an avenue for some people to do that, but it's also, it's a great place for people to just be QA, just uh, continue to grow themselves there. And uh, we have a lot more worth than some people give us credit for. So for any QA people that are out there that say, hey, you know, I feel like I'm uh Not feeling like quite part of the team, like you're a huge part of the team. They wouldn't be able to do the things that they do without you guys.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always say that embedded QA on the dev floor is some of the best people I get to work with and make my life that much better and more enjoyable. And then always, always contribute directly back to the quality of the game right? Because you guys do some crazy things and sussing out ways to break a system or, or a tool or an experience in ways that I never would have thought of, right? And and again, always being able to bounce ideas off of you. Thank you so much. And we will stay in touch.
1: All right. Thanks so much for having me.
0: What an epic journey Jell's been on in this industry. It definitely says something about the development hub and endless opportunities available here in Seattle. Have you ever heard of a case of mistaken identity where you bring in a candidate completely confusing them for someone else? I've never seen let alone heard about that before. What takeaways did you have listening to Jell's story? For me, I'd say it's easily her curious nature and how she's constantly embracing new challenges and jumping headfirst to ask questions, learn, try, learn and repeat that process over and over. It's a natural fit for her to bring her skills to UX and research that paired with her ability to foster her network and professional relationships and always having a contact that would let her know when there was an opportunity that was available for her and put in that good word or referral. The name of all video game work is networking and who you know, almost honestly over what you know, even though that's still a key part of it. On the next episode, we feature Elaine Gomez, a game designer for Brass Lion Entertainment, who will share her journey through our beloved industry. She's part of the industry's new blood, and for her time here, has already made immense waves being a co-founder of Latinos in Gaming and part of the Game Awards Future Class, as well as a prominent inspiration for all people of the global majority, especially Latinas wanting to get in and do the damn thing. I'll mention for the sake of my nieces, También es la primera dominicana y puertorriqueña game designer that I've met. That episode drops on Monday, the 22nd, the week of U.S. Thanksgiving and Black Friday Madness. So make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers podcast, releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, bring 'em home. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain, crew, please
1: take your seats. We are now about to enter the out of play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of
0: play, I never compromise. Yeah. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Uh,
1: make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Uh, out of play, area podcast. Out of play, out of play area podcast. We got to play.
0: It's just a little something for the game devs. Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous. Had to switch the styles for a challenge. Best thing out
1: of Harlem since young Miles Morales. A new podcast comes to provide.
0: Area podcast, a show by game devs for game devs, with no ads, no BS, just the rip Welcome to the
1: out of play area. Let's go.